I'd like to start, for those of you who were here last week, some of you may be like, uh, you have to catch me up, which we will in a second, but um, for those of you who were here last week, Paul um, talked through the, um, the why behind our work. Paul kicked us off last week, or re-kicked us off. We, we started this series back in March, right before quarantine happened, and we really wanted to focus on how uh, life in Christ, our faith in Jesus, affects our work. Most of us spend most of our lives, the, the balance of our lives is working, and it may be at a job site, it may be in an office, it may be at home, it may be as a, as a mother serving your family through your work, it may be as a mother and teacher teaching your children. That's more pertinent than ever right now because more people are doing it than ever right now too. Um, any type of work. You could be retired and obviously still working. This, this series and our focus in our, regarding faith and work is not just tied to the work that you get a paycheck for. Um, the concept is so much broader than that. And, and so we started that back before COVID, and then uh, we got shut down. And so Paul kicked us off again last week talking about the why behind our work. And what he talked about was the fact that we are made in God's image, and um, that drives the why behind our work. But before we, I, I continue kind of reviewing that and then go forward, I'd just like to ask those of you who were here last week, can anybody give me an example from your week, this past week, where you, because of your, um, because of the image of God in you, and because of how Paul taught us last week that our work is designed by God, and it follows God's example, because we're made in his image, to bring order out of chaos? You remember that if you were here last week and we talked about that? How did you, this week, through your work, bring order out of chaos? I, this past week, we had launched a new CRM system, a customer relationship management software. A lot of you probably use something like that or have used something like that. That can be total chaos. I, as one of the very fundamental, such a minute example, but uh, we needed to be able to track our sales pipeline more efficiently and so that the entire company could understand what everybody else was doing. And so I figured out a way in Salesforce to do that. I felt like a genius. It was probably the most rudimentary thing you could ever do, but I felt good about myself. Um, <laughs> and it brought a little extra order out of chaos in a CRM tool. And a lot of times we, get into, we, we come to work with this tendency that none of this really matters um, or any of, the, any of the specific tasks that you carry out on any given day, whether you're, you're at your, a job whether you're working at your home, whether you're working in your yard, whether you're working with your children, fill in the blank, um, we tend to minimize those things. Every single time we bring some order out of chaos, we're actually doing what we were meant to do. We were, we were literally created for this. And it can infuse so much of our work with meaning and dignity because God made us to follow him in bringing order out of chaos. And, and that's really what we talked about last week. Then God said, let us make man in our image. End of verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Paul pressed home the point last week, we've been made in God's image, 
And when we look at God and we see at the very beginning of Genesis that the first thing he does is he works. In the beginning, God created. And then drop down later in the chapter, we see these verses and we see we're actually made in his image. We follow him in his work. There's inherent dignity built into our work. That's why we work, because we're in his image and he works. And so that's really where we, where we, what we went through last week. The why behind our work. Again, I got ahead of myself. But that's what we talked about. This week, what I want to focus on, also primarily in Genesis, same, the same texts um, that we looked at last week, is the how. How should we approach our work? So we see that the why is we're made in God's image, and, so we are, and, and that is to bring order out of chaos through our work. But how do we approach our work? What's the kind of the macro reason behind it? How should we um, appro- approach each of our jobs? How should we approach working within our homes, et cetera, et cetera? Um, what is the, the, the how? I want to start exactly where Paul started last week and where we finished, and that is in the, the fact that we are made in God's image. They're rooted in the same principle, the same concept. And second... Um, what we see in Genesis 1 and 2 primarily, in Genesis 1 and 2 because it's pre-fall. If we were to read in Genesis 3, we see that Adam and Eve sinned. And ever since sin happened, it's, it's marred everything about creation. But what we see, and I'm just going to give you these points up front, what we see is that God designed creation for flourishing. God designed it for flourishing. A Old Testament Hebrew term that is that is basically synonymous with flourishing is the term shalom. Anybody want to tell me what, sh- what you've heard shalom means? Peace, right? Peace. And it doesn't just have a, a peace. Um, it, it, peace is a piece of the meaning. God designed creation for that. That's why it was perfect when God made it. That's why at the end of every day, he gets done and he says, it, it, it was, it's good. Next, though, because we're made in God's image, just like we follow him, as Paul pointed out last week, in bringing order out of chaos, we follow God's example and command to pursue flourishing or shalom through our work as well. We're made in his image, so we're supposed to follow him in that work. So that's what, that's what we're pursuing as well. And then, last of all, and this might seem kind of unrelated to the, the, the preceding points, but we function as ambassadors of King Jesus. I'm going to talk about that more in just a second and how it connects to our God's design for creation and our following God and pursuing flourishing. But we function as ambassadors of King Jesus. We're going to talk about that in just a few minutes. But first of all, when we talk about um, flourishing, here's, a, here's an, a, a, a definition for you that you can keep in mind and think through as we, as we go through multiple texts. To grow or develop in a healthy or vigorous way, especially as a result of a particularly favorable environment. That's a a definition of flourishing. And connected to it uh, is that concept of shalom. Shalom is not just peace, but it is that completeness, that um, a, a sense of wholeness. And when we look throughout the Old Testament, we see that um, this term shalom comes up multiple times, and in fact, the same concept is, um, is referred to often in the New Testament, but with a Greek word that also means peace. Um, it's irene. You see it throughout the New Testament. And it is basically, it's a biblical concept of God created the, the world in completeness and wholeness. That's the original design. 
Sin messed it up. So what we experience now is not how it's supposed to be. But one day we're going to return to that and that because of the work of Jesus. But so I want us to think in those terms here because in, in Genesis 1 and 2 where we're going to look at multiple texts, we see this, this concept play itself out over and over again. And again, because we're made in God's image, we follow God in the same type of work. So just a few concepts that we're going to um, consider, we're going to walk through very briefly this morning. First of all, God's example, he designed creation to flourish. We already talked about that. Second, God's command, he commands us to participate in his design. We're going to talk about that in just a moment as well. Jesus' kingdom, Jesus reversing sin's curse. We're going to talk about that. And then finally, I'd like to, as as we're going through this, and we're going to move fairly quickly, as we're going through this, I'd really like you to think about practical application, how your work reflects his design and then points others to to King Jesus. Think about that as we go along. And again, I I really want to press this point home because it's very easy easy to, when we talk about work, think of it only in terms of um, a job that you go to. And if you're if you don't have a job yet, or you're in between jobs, or you're retired from work, you may go, well, this isn't really for me. It is for every single person in this room, because work is our leveraging energy to bring order out of chaos. And you do that over and over and over and over throughout your day, regardless of whether or not you're garnering a paycheck from it. So first of all, um, God's example. He designed creation to flourish. Let's go through multiple texts. Genesis 1, 11 through 12. Paul read uh, several of these last week, last week but I want to, especially th- those words in bold, I want us to focus on them. God's creating, and, 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 and God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. Drop down to ver- end of verse 12, and God saw that it was good. God did not just create a utilitarian Uh, or did not design a utilitarian creation. He designed a creation meant to flourish, to reproduce, to expand, to fill the earth. He designed it that way. Otherwise, he wouldn't have put seeds in it so that those same trees could then reproduce and and create more vegetation. Second, um, Genesis 1, 20 through 21. Now he's talking about the the living creatures, the the birds and the, uh, well, Sorry, I got ahead of myself. I'll get to the creatures in the water. But here, it's, it's the birds. Let the water swarm. No, I was right. The water swarm with swarms of living creatures. So fish, other aquatic life. And let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. Drop down, and God saw that it was good. He doesn't just fill the earth with, or he doesn't just um, bequeath the earth with a few different versions of birds or in the waters of fish. He, I mean, you look at God's creation and you see, you see such biodiversity, it's insane. And you also see as part of it, there's creativity that God leveraged. There's a sense of humor that God leveraged. You look at some of the, the fish that you see in, and you're like, what in the world? That is the weirdest thing I've ever seen. God did all of those things. This isn't an evolutionary process. This, isn't, this didn't just happen. God did this because he's leveraging creativity and design and humor and diversity. He does this on purpose. He does it so that the earth is filled with his glory and that's multifaceted. And he saw that it was good. And God blessed them. This is after he creates the, the, the birds and the fish and the vegetation. 
says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. Again, designed for expansion and reproduction. Genesis 1, 24 and 25. Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their, their kinds. So those animals that are upon land. And again, we see the exact same thing as we did in the seas and in the air with, uh, with birds. We see him do the same thing with animals on land. He creates diversity. He leverages his creativity. He leverages his sense of humor to fill the earth with not just a few different versions of animals, he fills it with a, a, a vast array so that the earth reflects his glory and so that it actually reproduces and multiplies. So there's, there is an energy, there is an expansiveness to God's creation that's meant to continually reproduce itself. And he says that it was good. So when, um, when we look at the vegetation, the birds, the, the aquatic life, and then the, the land animals, we see multiple examples of God basically saying, I'm designing this earth to not just work, but to be a, a beautiful example, a multifaceted example of who I am and, and what, my, what, what is my image. In Genesis 1, 29 through 30, and God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on all the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. Not only does he actually make the creation um, uh, multifaceted and creative, he then provides for that creation to continually sustain itself. He says, I'm, I'm actually providing the vegetation for you to eat so that you can continue to flourish. He creates it in completeness and wholeness. And that's why at the end of each day, he gets done and he says, it was good. And at the very end, he said, it was very good. Creation was made as God intended it, and it was made to flourish. But then he brings mankind into his design as well. We see in 126 and 27, we already read that text, but we see that he created mankind in his image. He created us to follow him in his creative endeavors, his creative activity. But then on top of that, in 126 and 27, he says there in bold, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, and ever, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Not only not only does he make us in his image, he then gives us the mandate to cultivate the creation that he has blessed us with, that he has placed us in. Cultivating it from the standpoint of exercising dominion over it. Not just leveraging the, the raw materials, the resources that he puts on this earth just so that we can selfishly um, use them and abuse them. He actually places us here to steward this. We can't be creators that create out of nothing like God does, but we can be secondary creators and we can be cultivators and that's how we exercise dominion. So when you think about your work, you're actually living out what he created you to do, that we are exercising dominion over the creation that he has placed us in. We're the only creatures that he has made that get that opportunity and have that mandate. And it is a mandate, it is a command. 
that we exercise this dominion, this stewardship. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and exercise dominion over it. Genesis 2.15, the Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Have you ever thought about that? Everything was perfect, right? It was, complete, it, was, it was a perfect state of shalom. It was complete and whole. But yet, God places Adam into the Garden of Eden, and then he brings Eve into the Garden of Eden with Adam, and they go work it and keep it. This, there's zero negative connotation with work right now, right? There's no sin. Have you ever thought about the fact that when, when Adam went to go cultivate it, he had to invent the first rake, the first shovel, I don't know what those would have looked like. <laughs> but do you, have you ever thought about that? Like, they didn't just walk around or just lounge under trees and eat apples all day. They didn't just hang out. No, they actually worked and cultivated. And they had to invent. They had to take disparate materials and make, make uh, whole units out of them, right? Otherwise, there'd be no cultivation. Just walking around kicking rocks out of the way. No, they actually had to, they had to leverage their ingenuity, their, their, their image of God, to work it and keep it. Um, one of the things that, um, that God had Adam do, we read there right in chapter 2, is that he gave names to all of the livestock and the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. He leveraged that ingenuity, that creativity, probably even that sense of humor, to give names, to categorize so this, is, this isn't just God doing it for mankind. He's saying, I'm, I'm not only inviting you in, I'm commanding you to do the same type of thing in creation that I've already done. And it came down to something as simple as calling a zebra a zebra. And I don't know what Adam, in Adam's tongue, what zebra would have been. I can't help us there. But he had to categorize a name that was part of him exercising dominion over creation. And then God gives to mankind the same command that he gave to the, um, the, uh, the birds and the fish, that they be fruitful and multiply. He does that also for mankind. But then, lest we think that Genesis 3, when the fall comes into play, when they sin, lest we think that that kind of goes away, that that command, that mandate to exercise dominion and to pursue the flourishing of creation, that it goes away. Look at Genesis 9, verses 1, 1 through 2. This is after not only the fall, but it's also after the flood that eradicated most of life on the earth. Noah and his family come out of the ark, and God says to them the same thing that he said to Adam back in chapters 1 and 2, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Continue carrying on the same mandate to pursue that flourishing and wholeness, that shalom in this earth that I originally created you for, even though it's going to fight back at you because sin exists. Still pursue that. Still go out. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. In Jeremiah 29, this fast forward through much of the Old Testament, the, the people of Judah are in captivity in Babylon. They are exiles. They have been taken out of their country by an oppressive regime. They are stuck there, and they're going to be stuck there for 70 years. What does Jeremiah, Jeremiah, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, write to them? 
Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile, I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare. That word welfare, shalom. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Not only post-fall, not only post-flood, but now God's people in exile, God still gives them the same mandate. And he actually puts it in terms of work. Go build houses. Go exercise your ingenuity to build houses while you're in Babylon. While you hate being in a, in a place that, um, uh, in, a, in a country that is oppressing you, that has killed many of your family members, while you're there, still work. Still exercise your ingenuity and creativity by building houses and planting vineyards, by farming, by, um, by participating in, in life that pursues the shalom of the place that you're in, even though you don't want to be there. Let's give forward one more example of this command in the New Testament. You go to Ephesians. You see Paul writing, and he's giving commands that spring from our identity in Christ. And he says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Pursue the flourishing of those around us. That's why thievery, in part, is wrong, because it actually, it actually tears at the fabric of what God designed for creation to be. Instead, leverage your skill, your energy, your creativity, your ingenuity to work so that you can pursue flourishing, so that others can benefit from your work as well. So it's God's command that we participate with him in this, and it, doesn't, it, it isn't taken away by the fact that sin is in the world. How many of you had software glitches this week? Yeah. How many of you had communication breakdown this week at work? Maybe a nice way of putting it. Anybody have communication breakdown? Anybody have relational issues where you, you just don't understand each other and so it can be really frustrating and there can be friction, not even because you're mad at each other or you dislike each other, but because of the effects of the fall, you don't understand each other. <laughs> How many of you have been on a helpline this week with a customer service agent who, who maybe couldn't understand what you were trying to convey, you weren't maybe doing as good a job to convey your problem, and they weren't maybe giving you the solution? Probably wasn't because they didn't want to help you, it was because the effects of sin break down our ability to do this. But the fact of the matter is, it doesn't change for us, it doesn't change the mandate to pursue this, to pursue shalom, to pursue completeness and wholeness. And that, again, infuses your work and mine with incredible meaning. It infuses it with dignity because we're following God's example. So this is where Jesus' kingdom comes in. And I'm going to go through this quickly, but this is, this is incredibly important to us. Because like I said, this concept of flourishing or shalom is a, is a biblical narrative concept. It spans from Genesis all the way through Revelation. God created this world in completeness and wholeness in, in a state of shalom. Genesis 3, we see the effects of sin, but also at the same point in Genesis 3, we see God give the first indication that he's going to send someone who's going to start reversing the effects of that fall. 
And then throughout the Old Testament, you see over and over and over this foreshadowing of a coming king who will make this right, who will basically return us to Eden. And then you see into the New Testament, you see Jesus come. And he says things like, my, my kingdom is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. And he talks about not only the beginning of the kingdom, but then the expanse of that kingdom. It'll be like a tree that continues to expand and expand and expand. And it fills the earth and, and birds and all types of creatures come and live on its branches because it's so expansive. And you may not see it expand, but it's going to. And then one day he's going to sit on the throne and he's going to rule over creation in perfection and holiness. One little quick example of it, when Jesus is on the cross and he dies, the gospel writers tell us that the veil in the temple ripped from top to bottom. Remember that? Do you know what was embroidered on the curtain that ripped from top to bottom? It was a scene of Eden. Isn't that interesting? In part, what Jesus does on the cross is give us access back to God, but in part, he also paves the way back to Eden, back to wholeness, shalom, complete flourishing. And that's what we find in, um, in the book of Revelation. But before that, it's foreshadowed in, in, back in an Old Testament book in, in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 11. Righteousness, righteousness shall be the belt of his waist. This is the Messiah. This is the, the um, offspring of Jesse that he refers to at the beginning of the chapter. And faithfulness, the belt of his loins, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the, with the young goat, the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. He paints a picture of a return to Eden, and he says this king will bring it back. In Revelation chapter 21, John is giving us the vision that he has of the new heaven and the new earth. The new earth. And he speaks specifically of the new Jerusalem. And he says, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of a sun or moon to shine in it, for the glory of God gives its light. And its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. At the end of God's special divine revelation to us, he paints us a picture of a return to wholeness. And Jesus is the author of that return. Now, we could look at that and say, well, that's out in the future. What in the world does my work have to do with that now? Well, Jesus, when he came to this earth, like I said, he talked often about the kingdom being at hand. He talked about the fact that he was the inaugurator of that kingdom, that kingdom the, beginner, the beginner of that kingdom. And then when he died and he was buried and he rose again, he rose again as the king without us fully realizing yet or fully experiencing yet his complete dominion over this earth, the work that he did through his death, burial, and resurrection made it as good as done. A lot of, a lot of theologians put it in these terms. We live right now in the already but not yet. The not yet is when we return to Edenic state, when everything is shalom again, when, when all of Christ's enemies have been placed under his feet. But the work that he did has made it as good as done. 
So as we work and as we follow Jesus, this is where Jesus' kingdom comes into this whole concept of pursuing flourishing through our work. Our work is not only us following God's design for it, it is also following Jesus in showing others what it's like to be a citizen of that kingdom. So your, your work not only has a, an image of God outworking effect, it also has a gospel effect. And it, your work, obviously, and, and many of you have thought of this, and, and thankfully many of you leverage this, your work puts you in a position to tell people about Jesus, right? Maybe it does. Maybe you work only by yourself. But often you get an opportunity to talk with coworkers about Christ, and that's wonderful. But it's not just, the gospel effect is not just for that. It is also through the very work that you do that you get to reflect not only your creator, but your citizenship as uh, one of Jesus's uh, kingdom saints. You get to prove that you belong to a kingdom that is, is going to return everything to an Edenic state. And you can, you can show that through your work. That you're actually designed to do that. So, I went through like a gazillion texts there. We have three minutes till we're done. How does your work promote flourishing? How does your work promote shalom? How, or how, how, maybe you haven't thought of it this way, but how as you go into this next week, are you thinking differently about your work and how you can pursue this? We, are so, we, we, we tend so often to a myopic approach to our work where it is, I'm doing this job so that I can get a paycheck so that I can support my family, or so that I can get to the weekend. Um, I'm doing this for me. When a believer is able to take that work and say, you know what? Yeah, do I need to get a paycheck out of this? Yeah, I do, <laughs> potentially. Or do I just need to get this job done? And maybe I there's no paycheck involved. Maybe I just need to do this work. But there is another element to our work that puts us in a position to say, how can I build others up as I'm doing this work? How can I encourage others through my work? How does my ability to do this job really, really well help those around me flourish and increase in their abilities and in their, in their success in their work? As you think about work this week, or maybe later tonight, whatever, as you think about work, I would, I would encourage you strongly to think about work from this perspective, not just doing the job, but how does how I do the job and how I treat people as I'm doing the job, promote shalom. And then secondarily, how does it also point people to the fact that I'm part of a, of a different kingdom altogether? I'll tell you, if you can approach your work that way, it's going to change fundamentally your attitude about it. <laughs> because you might hate your job. <laughs> but you can hate your job, and I can hate my job, um, as long as we are approaching it from a very myopic standpoint. But if we're approaching it from this perspective, from an image of God and then a kingdom perspective, it can change very much how we approach it and it can change how we treat people in the process. Thank you. You're dismissed.